Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 3. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia in chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for... The righteous man shall live by faith. And do note, congregation, that our version of the Bible here puts quotes from the Old Testament all in capital letters. So, so what Paul is saying in verse 11 there, before God is evident, for, and then he, he's quoting a, an Old Testament text there, for the scripture says, the righteous man shall live by faith. Continuing on then in verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, and again, here he quotes another scripture, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So far, the reading of God's Word. Congregation, as we begin to think about this passage of Scripture, I would like, as I've given you there in the outline, to read this with you uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you have that outline in front of you, you can see that I've quoted just a paragraph there. I think it's actually just a sentence. From the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. And it's a good lead-in to the sermon as we contemplate this passage of Scripture. So let me read that with you. It reads, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him, that is unto God, as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. What does that mean? It's quite technical, isn't it? But, but basically, congregation, what the, what the Westminster Confession is teaching there, and, and this is very true, this is something that we would all give our assent to, is that we owe God our obedience for no other reason than the fact that he created us. God has a right to demand obedience from us, because he owns us in that regard. He brought us into existence. He's the potter, we are the clay. He brought us into existence. We owe him obedience. End of, end of statement. But the Westminster Confession goes on to say, yet we could never have any fruition of him. In other words, we could never enjoy him in a relationship of love and happiness and joy, or as it says here, as their blessedness and reward, unless... God does something. Right? We owe God obedience just, just because He created us. That's, that's just already in place. But now, the, the, the confession states here that if we're going to enjoy God as a friend and to have that relationship, that mutual relationship of joy and gladness together, God has to do something. God has to reach down to us. And now the, the glad news of Scripture, right, is that God has repeatedly done that. He has come down from heaven and entered into relationship with His children. And the term for that in the Scripture is covenant. Covenant. You can imagine the difference, congregation, between the relationship that you have with your wife and your employer. Right? You owe your employer obedience. Right? And maybe you're friends with your employer. Uh, but you might not be, right? I mean, you might not have a good relationship with him. You might have a good relationship with him or her or whatever. 
right? But it's, it's just a, we, we would even today call that just a professional relationship, right? But with a, with a friend, okay, you think of your best friend, your spouse, or, or whoever your best friend may be, right? It's a very different, right? You do nice things for each other. You, there's love, there's kindness involved. Now, in order for that kind of relationship to exist between God and us, there has to be, as the confession says, some kind of voluntary condescension on God's part. God has to come down and re- we can't reach up to Him. No, that has to start with God. And praise God, that's exactly what He's done repeatedly in Scripture. In fact, we know, congregation, we considered that several times already uh, just in the last month. We know that even in eternity past, God made a covenant with His Son, Jesus Christ. And now, in time, God has made covenants with His people throughout the ages of Bible history. And those covenants then are the term, right? The defining, they define the relationship that exists between God and his people. Because covenants have terms. A covenant has terms. This is how God administers his kingdom. He reaches down. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. And now those covenants define how, or or perhaps we might say, this is how God administers his relationship with his people. That means, congregation, it behooves us to know what covenant we are under. That's the title of the sermon today. Under which covenant are we? And congregation, this is a matter of of everlasting importance. We need to know the terms. What does God expect of us under the covenant that we are under? I can use an illustration here that I think many of you will understand, right? If you go to the county and you get a license to carry a pistol, a concealed pistol license, right? There's the terms of the covenant, right? You, You can carry it here, you can carry it there, right? And all the different things. They give you a card, right? But what happens when you go out of state? Right? When you take that concealed pistol license out of state, when you go to Ohio, nothing really changes. When you go to Indiana, nothing really changes. But what about when you cross into Illinois? Now changes happen, don't The terms of the covenant are very different there. Right? And I think, I think uh, you know, you, those of you who have this know that, right? You know that that Illinois border is a very different story, right? When you cross the border into Illinois or if you should go to California or New York, or one of those states, right? The terms of the covenant there are very different, right? Whereas when you go to Michigan or Ohio, Tennessee, right, those states, pretty much there's a a recognition of, of the law in Michigan is the same as the law in those states. Now, congregation, you know, multiply that times 10, right, and 100, and, and you think about our, our, our relationship with God is administered, is dictated, is defined by these covenants that God has given to us. And that's why I, I, say, I lay before you this morning, under which covenant are we? And so what I'd like to do then is to look at some of these covenants with you and to read and to understand what Scripture teaches us about these covenants so we can know what are the terms of the covenants of the covenant that we are under. Now the first covenant that I come to is in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, and if you, uh, these words are very familiar to you, but if you look in Genesis 2 and verse 16... You can see that God defined the relationship. He gave Adam the terms of the covenant. In Genesis 2, verse 16, 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So these are the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam. Adam, here is a garden. You may eat from any tree here, except this one tree. In the middle of the garden, you may never touch the fruit of that tree. Those are the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam. Now, in, uh, in, uh, this, in uh, Genesis, we're not told that it's a covenant. However, if you were to look up Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, you would see that it says in that verse, but they have transgressed, but they, like Adam, have transgressed my covenant. And in Hosea 6, verse 7, God is talking to the people of Israel because they broke his covenant. God had given them the terms of the covenant and they broke it. And God is now saying to the children of Israel in Hosea 6, verse 7, but they, like Adam, have broken the covenant. That's how we know that the relationship that we have in Genesis 2 is a covenant relationship. And then Romans 5, verse 19, also teaches us something very important about the covenant that God gave to Adam in Genesis 2. Because in Romans 5, verse 19, we see a parallel made. A comparison made between Adam and Christ. In Romans 5, verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is, through Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now this is a critical verse for understanding what takes place in Genesis 2 congregation because the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam are very much a merit-based covenant. In other words, God made a covenant with Adam in which Adam had to do everything. Adam had to earn God's favor. Now, how do I know that? Well, because it's put in parallel here with Christ, right? We know that Adam, that God made a covenant with Adam and that Adam failed that covenant. And Romans 5 is teaching us that through that disobedience, all men were rendered sinners. But then it compares that to what Christ did. Because what Adam failed to do in that covenant, Christ succeeded in doing in the same covenant. He kept the terms of that covenant perfectly and thus made righteousness possible for all men. So that means that Adam was responsible to earn God's favor through perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to the commandments of God. Now, of course, all that was tied up in that one commandment of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And Adam failed. And Christ succeeded. So what can we say then about the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam? Well, we would say that it is a merit-based covenant. And children, or anyone, if you have that outline, you can circle that word merit there, right? You see that? Because all the onus in this covenant was on Adam. Adam had to keep the covenant. We don't read anywhere in Genesis that God said, I will help you, Adam. I'll give you my spirit to assist you. No, this is a foundational covenant for all the, pre all the covenants that will follow. That God requires of Adam and of all the sons of Adam perfect obedience without the least transgression, without the least variation from any of God's commandments. Perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. This is not a, a gracious covenant congregation in that sense. It was gracious in the sense that God made a covenant with Adam, period. Right? Because again, we already talked about that. God didn't need to make a covenant with Adam. 
But he did. But the terms of this covenant are merit-based. A covenant of works, as, as our confessions and our theology, uh, the theology in the Reformed churches, we call that a covenant of works because it is works-based, merit-based, and Adam has to do everything. All the onus is on Adam. Well, let me move then to these other covenants. Because when we come to Genesis 9, we also find, again, that God condescends to speak to, to Noah and he makes this covenant. But now we see a difference. We see a change, don't we? In Genesis 9 and verse 8. In Genesis 9 and verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And in verse 10, with all the beasts. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, congregation, I wonder if you can hear the difference, right? Do you hear the difference between God saying to Adam, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of this tree, don't touch it. But now what God says to Noah, Noah, never again am I going to curse the earth with a flood. Do you see the difference? The terms of this covenant are now different, aren't they? Now it's God is going to do it. Now all the onus or if we could say all the, all the obligation even, is on God. Let me just ask you this, congregation. What did Noah have to do to make sure that this covenant happened? What did he have to do? Well, nothing. Right? Noah basically just had to trust God. To, 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 to trust and to follow God. And God did everything. You see, so now we go back to those terms. Is it, it merit-based as the covenant that God made with Adam? Or is it a grace covenant? Or a, again, to use the language of theology, a covenant of grace. Clearly, the covenant that God made with Noah is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant where God does. Man just receives the blessing of it. But he does nothing to receive it. He does nothing to work it out. How many of us got up this morning and thought, oh yes, I'm under the terms of the Noahic Again, I use the term the Noahic or the covenant that God made with Noah. I have to do this to make sure that it's kept. Right? We, don't, we don't do that. We just receive the blessing of it every day. It's a gracious covenant. When I go to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12. Now just listen to this. And again, you can hear immediately what kind of covenant this is. What are the terms of this covenant? Genesis 12. And in verse 2, God says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What kind of covenant is this? What are the terms of this covenant? Again, congregation, this is not the covenant like God made with Adam in the garden. This is a covenant of grace. This is a covenant where God is going to do. God is going to give the blessing. And Abraham is simply called to trust. To simply walk with God to trust and to follow Him. It's a covenant of grace. In Genesis 15, in Genesis 15, where God, again, makes that, He renews this covenant with Abraham, you have that ceremony, and uh, I don't want to read that now, but you remember the ceremony where the, the pieces of the animal were cut, right? And they were separated. And, and then the, the, the idea here then is these animals are cut in pieces and separated out so that there's a pathway. And imagine... The, the bloody animals on both sides, right? You can imagine the sight that that must have been. 
And then the person who was going to keep the covenant, he had to walk down the middle of that path because the idea here then is, is may I be like those animals if I don't keep my covenant? Well, congregation, look at Genesis 15 and verse 17. Genesis 15 and verse 17, where we read, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven or a smoking torch, a fire, a blaze of fire, and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Congregation, who walked between those pieces? Was it Abraham? It was God himself. I I hardly dare to say this, congregation. But what God is saying is may I be like those pieces if I don't keep my covenant with you, Abraham. That's a very different covenant than the covenant God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? This is a covenant of grace. This is what God will do, not what Abraham will do. A covenant of grace. And then in Genesis 17, God gives to Abraham the sign of the covenant. But let's quickly move on then to to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, I'm just going to mention this for time's sake. But in 2 Samuel 7, you have God makes a covenant with David. God makes a covenant with David. And God, again, promises to give David an eternal dynasty. A son of David will sit on your throne, David, forever and ever. Never will there be. Never will there uh, be a person on the throne of Israel, uh, except that it's your son. Now, again, I'd I'd love to say more about that. (laughs) See, the clock is my enemy here. Uh, uh, But I want to go back then. So we we saw these covenants, these grace covenants that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with David. God is going to do it. But when we come to the covenant with Israel congregation, we come to a different kind of covenant, don't we, again? And here I'm going to say that the terms of this covenant are mixed. There appears to be some of grace. There appears to be some of works. Because on the one hand, God gives Israel all these laws that they have to keep. They're under an obligation to keep all these laws. And yet there's also grace, isn't there? Because God teaches them these sacrifices, right? Where if they kill these animals, there is this representation, this picture of the gospel. That blood is shed so that your sins can be forgiven and atoned for. So there's the kind of a mix then, isn't there, between, between law and gospel. Between works and grace in the Mosaic, or the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant God made with all of Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, I hasten then to the conclusion of this then, because this now is the point, congregation, that we come to in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, we have this dispute, don't we, between the Judaizers in Galatia, who are insisting that in order to be a Christian, you must also be circumcised. You must also keep the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, no. Under which covenant are we? And Paul is saying that we're not under Moses' covenant anymore. We're not obligated to keep all the laws and the statutes and, the, and, the, and the, um, the imperatives given us in Moses' law. Because that law, that covenant has been done away with. We're not under that law anymore. Well then, Paul, which covenant are we under? And Paul says, well, then we're under the previously made covenant with Israel. And what is that covenant? Well, look with me at Galatians 3 and verse 17. So Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, what I am saying is this, 
The law which came 430 years later, right? Mount Sinai was 430 years after God made the covenant with Abraham. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, the promise that God gave to Abraham. You understand that? The law, which was a covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, that can't annul or nullify the covenant that God made with Abraham, Paul says. And therefore, when the Mosaic law and that covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai goes away at the coming of Christ, which is what he says in the later verses there, what's left? Well, then we are under the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. Again, if you continue on in Galatians 3, Notice where it says in verse 23. But before faith came, in other words, before Jesus came, and we were to put faith in Jesus, we were kept in custody under the law, in other words, under the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. But now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under that tutor. We're no longer under that covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. For you are all sons of God through keeping Moses' law? No, through faith in Christ Jesus. And the grand conclusion given us in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. That means you are under Abraham's covenant. Heirs according to promise. Well, congregation, I know that's a lot to a lot to think about, a lot to ponder there. And, and the, the Galatians 3 is a, is a notoriously, some of, the, some of the lines of reasoning there are notoriously difficult to follow. But this is not difficult to follow. That Paul says that the covenant God made with Moses was lifted off. Earlier in, in the book of Acts, he'll say it's a burden that neither we nor our fathers could bear. And when Christ came, he put an end to that law. He lifted it off. So that now the Abrahamic covenant is left as it originally was. And Paul says, we are under that covenant. And what is the beauty then of being under that covenant? What are the terms of that covenant? Well, I've put in my notes here a lesser requirement and a grand requirement. What is the lesser requirement? Well, what was the terms of the Abrahamic covenant? Right? We went through those. I went through it quite quickly, but... In Genesis 12 and verse 15, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. But then in Genesis chapter 17, we are given what I'm calling the lesser requirement, because it's really not a requirement at all. It's really just a recognition that we are in covenant with God, right? And God said, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So, congregation, one of the requirements, one of the terms of God's covenant with Abraham is that the infant seed, the infant children, receive the sign of God's covenant. That is one of the terms of the covenant that God has given us. And that is why, congregation in the Reformed churches, we baptize infant children. Because we come this morning to a question. Here we have Warren. Oh, he's not here anymore, but he was here. Warren was here. He was here. We all saw him. Under which covenant is he? Paul very clearly says here, 
Paul very clearly says that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But we don't know if Warren is a... I keep saying Warren. Um, yeah, it is Warren. Warren. Warren is a believer. We don't know if Warren is a believer. We, we can't see. We can't see into his heart. So why would we baptize him then? Right? That's the question that has always disturbed the churches. Well, congregation, I bring you back to the title of the sermon. Under which covenant are we? And this is the question. Under which covenant are we? Are we participants in Abraham's covenant? And I, I, I want you to see it, congregation, with your own eyes in your own Bible this morning. Are we participants in Abraham's covenant? Then are we not held to the strictures or to the requirements, to the terms of Abraham's covenant? And we're very clearly taught in the book of Genesis... And God very clearly taught Abraham that he was to apply the sign of the covenant to his infant children. And that's why in the Reformed churches we continue that practice. Because we say we are under Abraham's covenant. Now you may hesitate and you say, well, aren't we under the new covenant? And that's a very good point because you're exactly right. Scripture clearly teaches that there is a new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. The old covenant was God's covenant that he made with Moses. The old covenant is done away with. And now we are under the new covenant. But congregation, I, I trust I've showed you this morning that the new covenant is just Abraham's covenant restored without the uh, burden of the uh, Mosaic covenant upon it. Is that clear? We are participants in Abraham's covenant. And therefore, we're held to the terms of Abraham's covenant. And God has told us to apply the sign of the covenant to our children. You might say, well, then why aren't we circumcising our children, right? That's what God commanded Abraham to do in Genesis 17. Well, there we do have explicit teaching of Scripture, don't we? There Paul very clearly, in fact, right in this very book of Galatians, right? He teaches that circumcision is finished with the coming of Christ. And again, he has his reasons for saying that. I won't go into that now. But it's very clearly taught us that circumcision has come to an end. And the new covenant sign is baptism. Now that's really not that terribly controversial a point. But under the new covenant, it's clear that when people believed the gospel, they were baptized. And that circumcision is no longer a sign of any significance. So baptism is the sign of the covenant under the new covenant? Or again, isn't it interesting that the new covenant is really older than the old covenant, isn't it? The new covenant being the covenant that God made with Abraham. But clearly God expects the sign of the covenant to be applied to the infant children of the, of the people of God in the Abrahamic covenant and in the new covenant. Now, you, you might say as well, uh, to hesitate a bit here and say, well, you know, there's no command given us in the New Testament to baptize our infant children. And that's true, isn't it? Right? I don't think anybody could find a command in the Bible or, some, or you know, any one of the authors of the New Testament says, make sure you baptize your infants. So what do we do in that situation then? What do we do in that situation? We go back to the question, right? That's at the head of the sermon this morning. Under which covenant are we? If there's no command given us in the New Testament to baptize our infant children, then we must go back and find out, well, what are the terms of the covenant that we're under? And if Paul has clearly taught us this morning, as I believe he has, that we're under Abraham's covenant, then we're held to the terms of Abraham's covenant. 
And under that covenant, God says to apply the sign of the covenant to your infant children. And that's why in the Reformed churches, we continue to do that. Because you're right, there is no command to baptize infants to children. There's no command not to baptize them. So in the absence of any kind of explicit teaching on that, we keep doing what God has taught us to do in the past. So that is the term of the covenant, and especially, again, that's relevant to us this morning, having baptized one of the children of the congregation. And in the Reformed churches, this is the reason why we do it, because we see ourselves as participants in Abraham's covenant. Now, you can, you can do whatever you like with that, to think about that and to, and to ponder that. Again, my, here, my, or, uh, my goal this morning is not to try to convert you to the paedo-baptist position if you're a Baptist here this morning, but I would ask you to consider just the question, which is at the, the, the head of this sermon, under which covenant are we? But congregation, I make haste then to my very last point then, which is the grand requirement of the covenant of grace. And this, no matter if you're a Baptist or a Pado baptist this we all agree on, congregation, that the glorious terms of God's covenant that he made with Abraham and that he makes with us is that we are righteous before God by faith alone. And brother, this is your privilege and your obligation to teach your children and to teach even Warren and all of us who are parents today to come to our children repeatedly and to say, if ever we are going to be saved and if we're going to be right with God, it will not be by the terms of the covenant of works, by dotting every I and crossing every T, but it will only be by the terms of this covenant, which represents before us, as Paul says in verse 1, Christ Jesus publicly portrayed before you as the only Savior of sinners. And faith in Him alone is the only requirement of the covenant of grace. It's the only requirement of Abraham's covenant. It's the only requirement of our covenant. And what a glorious gospel, brother, and all the congregation here to represent before our children and to say that the sins that we have committed bring us under a curse before God. We can't skip that either, can we? We need to start there. That we are under a curse, dear congregation. And children, let me address myself especially to you this morning. That you too are under that curse of the law because you have sinned against God. And that God could send us to hell forever and forever. And he would do no injustice because of our sin and our guilt before him. But the glorious teaching of the covenant of grace this morning, congregation, is that there is one who went to the cross and who I may now publicly portray before you as crucified. His blood flowed, congregation, for the forgiveness of our sins. And he took the curse that was on us and he took it on himself. He was nailed to the cruel cross of Calvary that we might be set free. And congregation, this is the glorious preaching of the covenant of grace. The glorious preaching of the terms of this covenant, which is by faith alone, you are right with God. And dear children, dear young people, if you don't want to come under this covenant, the covenant of grace, then you revert back to the covenant of works that God made with Adam. And under that covenant, you have to spin out your own righteousness. You have to make atonement for your own sins. And that you can never, ever do. You know, the preaching this morning of the covenant of grace is so serious, congregation. 
because nobody leaves this congregate this this building different. I'm sorry, everybody leaves this congregate this building differently by hearing this message today. Because either we love the covenant of grace and we take refuge in the blood of Christ and become sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus, or we stand for our own account. And young people, I urge you, I call upon you this morning to hear the preaching of the covenant of grace and to take refuge in Christ. Probably you've done that already. I hope you have. But if you've never done that in your life, no matter how young you may be, Christ stands on this pulpit and he still says, come unto me. Let the little children come to me. And he blesses them. He places his hands on them. And he blesses them. And he says, of such is the kingdom of God. Congregation, I hope these words will be blessed to you and blessed to our children, to God's glory and the extension of his kingdom also in this place. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon where you've given us, O Lord, the terms of the covenant of grace, which is that you will do everything. We only put our trust in you. We only hold out the empty hand of faith and we receive everything from you as our covenant God, as our Father in Christ. I pray, O Lord, that you would press these things home upon the children also of this congregation. The great privilege which they are given in their baptism, that you will seal also to them that their sins are forgiven them only, only for the sake of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, we thank you this morning for the covenant of grace. We thank you, O Lord, that you will include also our children in that covenant. And we thank you for that, for the terms of this covenant, which are the only terms which are possible to us as sinners, the only hope of our salvation, that we can find refuge in Christ. Lord, we take refuge in him this morning and pray that you would bless us and give us a good time together as a congregation as we reflect upon these things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.